Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read the same paragraph that we read and studied last week, which begins in verse 5. Hear now God's word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would to Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray together. Father, humble us. Humble us in your sight. Humble us to be a people who hear you speak through your Bible your holy and inerrant word, and it actually changes us because we're listening. And it changes us because your Holy Spirit is here. And it changes us because you are committed to use it to break down our idolatry of self and rebuild in us a life that is wholly surrendered and devoted to you. Above all things, in the next few minutes we have together, give us this kind of blood-bought humility. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we preached from this passage last week, and last week we talked at length about the ills, the wickedness of slavery in America. We're hearing about slaves and masters. We talked about that with respect to America. And then we talked about the differences of slavery in Rome. And we explored Paul's aim here in addressing slaves and masters within Christian homes. If you weren't here last week, if you didn't hear that sermon, I refer you back to that. You can find that online and hear us talk directly to those things. Typically, when we approach this paragraph, that's the first thing that we need to do. We're hearing about slaves and masters. We need to address that in our history. And then sometimes we take this passage to then inform us about, well, we don't have slave and masters today. We have employers and employees. So what can this teach us about the workplace? And that's valid. There are some parallels there. I want to do something totally different. I want to take this passage and let it illuminate for us our own slavery to Christ. You and I are slaves to Christ. The Bible tells us that repeatedly. And how does this passage show us afresh what it means to be a living, breathing, born-again slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, this is interesting. Look at verse 5. Paul addresses slaves of earthly masters and he uses the Greek word doulos. You are a slave. But then in the very next verse, the ESV curiously translates that same Greek word doulos as a servant of Christ. So he says, you are a slave of your earthly master. But then when he's talking about your relationship with Christ, he uses the same word, but it's been translated a servant of Christ. 
Now that word doulos, it can mean slave or servant. But I don't like choosing one translation for verse 5 and then another translation for verse 6. Like when we're talking about the earthly dynamic, we're going to use the word slave because these were slaves of earthly masters. But then when we talk about our relationship with God and Christ, we're going to use the same word, but I think it's better translated servant to describe our heavenly relationship. Why would you do that? The ESV is actually not alone in that translation decision. Last week I referenced a phenomenal book, Murray Harris's Slave of Christ, and this is the point he makes. Of the 20 major English translations of the Bible, only one of them, only one in 20, consistently translates doulos as slave to refer to our relationship with Christ, and all other 19 prefer to use the word servant. Now, there are six other perfectly good Greek words that mean servant. If Paul was saying slave in one instance and he wanted to say servant in another, he could have chosen a number of different words, but he doesn't. He chose doulos again and again to refer to us as a slave of Christ. That begs a question for us when we see the lay of the land with the translations that we have. Why is there an almost universal aversion to using the language of the Bible to call ourselves slaves of Christ? Why don't we translate it that way? Why don't we talk about it that way? Why don't we self-identify that way? We talk about the mission of this church to be disciple-making disciples, and we chose that over slave-making slaves. We ran it by our PR department, and the disciple came back as the way to grow a church. Why is there this aversion to that language? We said last week it has to be in part because of our nation's wicked history with slavery. Slavery is forever tainted as a word in our minds because of our nation's history. But I don't think that's the only reason we prefer to call ourselves servants and not slaves. Maybe it is also in part because of our reluctance to describe our relationship to Christ as utter surrender and devotion like a slave to his or her master. Harris tells the story of a Romanian pastor who did ministry in his home country and he suffered for the gospel. He was arrested, he was thrown in prison, he was tortured, he was ultimately exiled for his faith. And wherever he went to speak, he told the person introducing him, I want you to introduce me as not my credentials, not what I've done, not what I've achieved. Tell the people I'm speaking to that I am a slave of Christ. And inevitably, the person introducing him would say, welcome our dear brother. He's a servant of Christ. They couldn't even bring themselves to do that. And this is what he says. There aren't many people willing to introduce me as a slave. 
They substitute the word servant for slave. In our Christianity, we have replaced the expression of total surrender with commitment and slave with servant. But there's an important difference. A servant gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. A servant commits ourselves to something, but when we surrender ourselves to someone, we give ourselves up. When we trade the title slave for servant, we fall right into the devil's trap that the kingdom of God is not for always, but for sometimes. That I seek first all these things, and maybe Christ will then add the kingdom of God to me. Meanwhile, in Scripture... Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of God. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he made known by sending his angel to his slave John. Colossians 4.2, Epaphras, who is one of you and a slave of Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a slave of Jesus Christ. Jude 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Even an angel in heaven. When the apostle John met an angel in heaven who appeared so bright and glorious to him that John who knew Jesus and had even seen the resurrected Jesus thought this angel was the Messiah and he fell on his face to worship him on two occasions and the angel has to plead with him, do not do that. I am not the Messiah. I'm just like you. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers and sisters. Disciples, apostles, lay people, even angels are referred to as slave, 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 slave. And then along comes the 21st century American church weaned on the idols of autonomy and inalienable rights for whom the idea of slavery to God is off-putting and offensive, for whom the idea of religion is to place ourselves at the center and let Jesus fill in the cracks to give our center meaning. And we take one look at the Greek word doulos and we say, let's go with servant. That's a flexible word. That's an elastic word. It looks like there are some loopholes in that word. It looks like we can do some things with that word. I want to choose to serve God where and when I'm ready to serve God. Christian, this ought not be so. We are not volunteers. We are not employees We are not hired hands. 
We don't clock in and out from nine to five, dividing our time between Christ's kingdom and our kingdom, renegotiating the terms of our employment, offering ever-evolving New Year's resolutions on what we have to offer to God in this new season. Brothers and sisters, we are not servants. We are slaves. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. We are slaves of Christ. That great gospel word, redemption, we have been redeemed Christ is my redeemer. We have experienced redemption. That's a great salvation word that Paul took directly from the slave market. When we say that, we mean that Christ bought us off the slave market block of sin and death. He bought me and redeemed me for his own and I am now his and a slave to him and not the sin and death from whence I came. Yes, he calls us sons. He calls us daughters. He calls us fellow workers in his kingdom. He even calls us friends. But we are always and forever in this kingdom slaves of God. Even angels in heaven, in perfection, are slaves of God forever. You know, this whole section that was directed to earthly slaves and their masters, it's going to perfectly illustrate for us as slaves of God what our relationship to our master is going to look like. Paul makes that perfectly plain to us because all throughout the paragraph he says, do this as you would to Christ or as slaves of Christ or as to the will of God or as to the Lord. Whatever you're doing in this life is only a metaphor illustrating, showing forth, proclaiming and worshiping God in the relationship that you actually have towards him as a slave. So this section begs the question, what what does this look like? If I'm a slave of Christ, what does my obedience to my master look like? We know from Ephesians, we're not saved by our works. Ephesians 2 makes that plain. We're saved by grace through faith. The only way we come to Christ is not by cleaning ourselves up and presenting ourselves as obedient slaves. No, no, no. It is by repenting of our good works and our bad works to receive his forgiveness and his righteousness to be welcomed into his kingdom. But then Ephesians 2.10 says there's this glorious truth. That God takes us who have been redeemed by grace, bought back by grace, and he lays out the pathway of good works before us. We do good works in the kingdom out of a response and out of the power that Christ gives us to do. So the question falls on every believer, every believer who's experienced the grace of God and a free salvation, what do good, good works look like as a slave of Christ? You're going to roll your eyes, but the three descriptions of obedience that God loves fit nicely under the categories that we gave our kids. 
we obey God right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That's what Paul says. Right away, all the way, with a happy heart. Let me just spend a few minutes on showing where he says those few things. He says that we obey God right away, and that's in verse 5. He says obey, and then he uses the phrase that occurs often in our Bibles, with fear and trembling. You obey with fear and trembling. Now that doesn't sound right to us. That sounds like we're kind of obeying with a dread that we never know when God is going to turn around and smack us upside the head. We're, we're obeying fretful of that. But we know that that can't be the meaning from the context because Paul tells slaves to obey their earthly masters in Rome with fear and trembling. But then he turns around and tells masters, don't even breathe, verse 9, a word of a verbal threat against your slave because you have a master. So we know it's not the threat of physical or verbal abuse. Fear and trembling in the Bible means reverence and respect for God. We obey right away in proportion to the reverence we have for our master. That's Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we obey right away. Number two, we obey all the way. Look at verse five. He says we obey with a sincere heart. You could even translate this with a singleness of heart. Not a half heart, not a distracted heart, a whole undivided heart. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Verse 6, whole hearts, all the way hearts, are very different than what Paul calls merely obeying for eye service or as people pleasers. Those are the kind of people who are obeying in the kingdom only when other people are watching them and can see what they're doing. I think the quickest way to spot a counterfeit Christian Somebody's here in name only, here for the benefits in this life only, who's not a true born-again believer. I think one of the quickest ways to spot a counterfeit Christian is to find out what this person does between them and God behind closed doors. Is there life there? Does anything happen there? I read a great article this week about someone who was actually able to mount hidden cameras in the collars of 16 cats. And he was able to answer once and for all, what does my cat do all day long? Like he was sleeping when I left, and he's sleeping when I got home. What did he do? And the answer, once you get a hold of that article, is actually a lot. Your cat did a ton of stuff. He did a lot of stuff. And we wouldn't have known that without a camera. What does that camera look like on your Christian life behind closed doors? Is there life there? Do you talk to God? I don't mean a mealtime prayer. I mean, do you talk to God? 
Do you speak to him and share with him what's happening in your heart? Do you cry out to him? Are there sounds of joy like we read in the call to worship when it's just you and it's just God? Do you read his word? Do you pick up his Bible? Do you want to hear what he has to say to you? Are you finding ways to carve out time to listen to God speak to you? Do you pursue fellowship on your own? We together as a church, we're working on corporate habits of coming here on Sunday and meeting in life groups. But once you've done those two things and everybody saw you do those two things, do you on your own initiative reach out to a member of this church to ask about their spiritual life and where they are for the benefit of their soul and your own Christian? What does your life look like behind closed doors? Are you a people pleaser? Are you just here for the sake of other people noticing that you're here? Did you come this morning so that people will think that you're a good believer and that you can present your bulletin to Chick-fil-A and say, I went to church, can I get a discount on my biscuit? Or are there things happening in your heart and soul that make this compelling when no one is watching? That's obeying all the way with a sincere heart. A slave of Christ is growing by God's grace to obey right away, all the way. And then finally, with a happy heart. That's verse 7. It says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That word good will is like cheerfully or enthusiastically. Those are the ways that we're obeying. Is that not the great rub of true, supernatural, spirit-filled obedience? To not do something begrudgingly, but to do it cheerfully and enthusiastically. Because there are times in my life where I can obey right away and all the way, but it has nothing to do with a happy and a cheerful heart. When we read that uh, book for the Lent season, uh, Mike Mason's Champagne for the Soul, he made a fascinating grammatical point. He said, and you can argue about this later, God cares more about adverbs than verbs. God cares more about adverbs than verbs. For example, for our non-English majors, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 does not say God loves a giver. That's not what that verse says. God is not primarily emphasizing in that passage that he loves the verb, which is a giver. God is not saying, man, I will take a giver any way, shape, or form that I can get it. Like if you came this morning and you put anything in the offering plate, or anything online, and then you went home and grumbled about where else you could have spent that tithe and offering. God's not in heaven saying, we got it. We got the gift, we got the check, let's take it to the bank quick before they change their mind, let's cash this thing. We got a giver, that's awesome, that's all I really care about. No. 2 Corinthians 9-7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful 
giver. God is a sucker for adverbs because he does not want to resign us to a lifetime of begrudging, reluctant obedience. He said he's going to give us life and give it abundantly. And if we don't have joy and cheerfulness in our obedience as slaves of Christ, we will not taste what he is talking about when he says this new life is going to make your heart sing. It's going to make you happy. You're going to love to do these things. A slave of Christ strives to obey with God's power right away, all the way, with a happy heart. We walk out of this room and we don't do that, which every single person in this room will fail to do today. We repent and God forgives. When that does happen and we see a happy obedience, we praise God because we know that that comes from Him. And when we look to this afternoon and this week, we throw ourselves as slaves at the feet of our heavenly master because he's going to give us everything we need for life and godliness. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are your slaves. We have been redeemed from the trading block of sin and death. We have been bought by you and your precious blood and we are not our own. Therefore, we glorify you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Would you do something supernatural in us and make us a body of believers who obeys you right away, all the way, with a happy heart, for your glory and your kindness, in Jesus' name, amen.